Picture this. You're in your car and you're annoyed as you sit in bad traffic. Suddenly your view around the corner clears and you see a serious road accident. Now you're not so upset as your heart goes out to someone who's in real trouble. Out of the cab of the ambulance, you see a figure and you're grateful that someone is there to help those people in trouble. Who is that first responder? What's their life like? Let's find out. Welcome to You Will See the Doctor Now. I'm Nishan Sharma. This episode features my conversation with Stuart Perdoe. He's a public education officer for Calgary Emergency Medical Services, or EMS. Stuart took the time to answer some of my questions at the EMS offices in an industrial area near the airport, so there's a bit of compromise on the audio. Stuart has a calm and patient, but authoritative presence. Exactly the kind of person you want coming to help you when you really need it. Before we get to my conversation with him, make a note to visit the show's website at youwillseethedoctornow.com to see a short video tour Stuart gave me through an ambulance in the vehicle bay. There are some great answers to questions I've always had about how the inside of an ambulance works. Now, my conversation with Stuart. How many ambulances serve the city of Calgary? Within Calgary Metro alone, we have about 60 or 62 ambulances in the fleet, and that's just for Calgary Metro. Calgary has a population just over 1.2 million people. Uh, However, uh, at a peak time, we would only have about 45 to 48 of those resources in active duty uh, because the balance of those trucks are for spares for either unscheduled or scheduled maintenance. Uh, In the zone, Calgary zone, we have about 90 in the fleet. Uh, Province-wide, however, because we are a provincial entity. And the province of Alberta has about 4 million people in an area of 660,000 square kilometers, about the size of Texas. There's about 360 ambulances on the road, uh, like regular patient transport-capable ambulances. Uh, But in terms of marked vehicles, whether it's an ambulance, non-ambulance transport, so it's a marked vehicle that is for moving patients, but it is not uh, an emergency resource. And a um, MCI resource, there's about 460 marked units in the fleet, province-wide. An MCI resource could encompass anything to do with large-scale incidents or mass casualty incidents. Do you have a typical response time that you strive for? Yes and no. Of course, uh, in, in rural areas, let's start with that, where uh, you know the, the, the geography is just simply the basic factor. It could be a fairly lengthy response time, depending on where you are, yeah. uh, whether it's a legal land address or an actual residential address in, in a rural area uh, versus uh, an area on a highway, a plot somewhere in the middle of a field or something like that, or even a rescue or a semi-rescue into sort of mild backcountry or deep backcountry. So that, that could be a very protracted response time. Sure. In more metro areas of we we seek to always uh, obviously respond as quickly as we can we don't have an exact benchmark anymore in terms of minutes but we're always sending the closest resource the closest resource may also not be an ambulance it may be a paramedic response unit so K 
care are well started when we arrive. If there's, uh, um, uh, I don't want to call it a delay, but a sort of a pause in transport until a regular ambulance arrives, that could be the case as well. But care will start uh, within minutes, and then transport decisions are made after that. Every call will be a particular distance from an emergency crew, or will be more or less serious. How do calls to 911 get prioritized? Across North America, most of the 911s are using what's known as MPDS, which is Medical Priority Dispatch System. Uh, it's a very well-established system that's held up to all legal challenges or anything to do with that. And in and how it works in Alberta, this would be very standard across Canada, but Alberta uh, calls are dispatched chronologically. So in the order they come in, they are they are dispatched. There's no holding or triaging of calls in that regard. The level of response would be different for each call. So again, we send the closest resource to the closest call. So if something comes in and is determined to be uh, a non-lights and siren response, an ambulance will start in that direction, non-lights and siren, given the information the dispatcher has or the emergency communications officer has received. Uh, if a higher priority call comes in in that same area, that ambulance could be diverted to that and then the next available resource would be sent. Uh, but in all cases, whether it's deemed to be life-threatening or non-life-threatening, we simply send the closest resource every time. And at what point en route to a call is a crew considered engaged and won't be diverted? If we're, you know, within eyesight or we're, we're about to be arriving on scene, the crew would just so much as say that. Now, of course, under GPS and things like that, we know where our ambulances are to within three meters in the entire province. Uh, so we recognize that, that, you know, that's a factor as well. We wouldn't divert away from being at scene of a call for right there. Uh, it would, And as well, to the, the turnaround time to get back and start responding to a higher priority call would have to usurp by a, like a long shot. This almost never happened that the other resource wouldn't get there. We have our five different levels of response, theoretically. An alpha response is the only non-lights and siren response. Okay. So an ambulance, a 911 has been called, uh, resource isn't being sent at patient request, but it's non-lights and siren. Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and Echo determinants by dispatch are all lights and siren responses, but it's once you're lights and siren, it's the same. As I say, the ambulance doesn't know the difference. It becomes a little bit theoretical and academic to the crew. Theoretically, a delta and echo responses are the highest level of response that are theoretically a life-threatening emergency by dispatch. When paramedics arrive, we'll reassess that, right? And then Bravo and Charlie responses are urgent responses, maybe not life-threatening, but, but perhaps at least serious it's a little academic, a little bit theoretical from a public perspective. Uh, just know that an ambulance will either respond non-lights and siren or lights and siren, depending on the circumstance. Yeah. Does a patient get taken to the closest hospital, or does it depend on wait times or the case? Certain transport destinations are, are criteria dependent. So uh, certain things like multiple trauma or neurology or high-risk obstetrics must go to the Foothills Hospital within the city of Calgary. Uh, uh, there are other cases where we have destination protocols for area hospitals, but largely uh, we have a system that, that, that theoretically gives the patient the shortest wait time to see a doctor. So we may not go to the closest hospital, we, we routinely don't, we may bypass another hospital uh, because it's not the time it takes to get to the hospital that's important to the patient, it's how long will they wait to see a doctor. And what happens when you get to the hospital? Sometimes you have to wait, but you also need to get back right away for the next call. Ideally, we want all of our ambulances available all the time for the next call, right? And so an ambulance is either on a call, 
uh, just finishing up from one or waiting for his next one, <laughs> sort of the three phases ambulances exist in. Uh, so when we have a patient and we arrive at the hospital, we are assessed by the triage nurse who makes a determination where that patient may be going into the department. We are not able to go back into service until that patient has been received by the hospital. So whether it's under a doctor's care, a waiting room situation, or a holding area, the hospital, then we can relinquish care and go back to the truck. And it may be the case that our paramedics will wait with patients until they can be received by the hospital and the paramedic unit can be back in the service. If we run into circumstances where we're running uh, lower on trucks than we, we feel is comfortable, then we work with the hospital system to transfer those patients more expediently. Uh, but patients are never not under care. Even if they're in the waiting area, they're under the care of the triage nurse uh, in, 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 a, in a sense. Uh, in some instances, they're receiving care in the hallway until we're able to give them to the department. Excellent. Tell me about the levels of training you need to work for EMS. Uh, in Alberta, we are licensed by the Alberta College of Paramedics, and uh, there are, in essence, three levels. EMR, which is Emergency Medical Responder, which is uh, sometimes known as a first responder, a very basic entry-level course. Uh, it's weeks uh, in duration, a lot of online learning. Uh, there's no practicum at the end, uh, although you do have to license as an EMR if you want to work as one. And largely, they may work in transfer. They may work in rural industrial areas. They, it may be a stepping stone to another career, such as firefighting or even police or military. Uh, there's not a lot of gainful employment, to be honest, at the EMR level. Uh, that begins at the emergency medical technician level, now known as primary care paramedic under health disciplines. Uh, and that's more like a 10-month to a year course, uh, higher level of training, uh, practicums at the end with uh, uh, paramedics, EMTs, and nurses in the hospital, just a larger scope of practice. And then the highest level of training in Alberta is the Advanced Care Paramedic, ACP, who have a diploma from a post-secondary institution. They work uh, at the highest level with uh, things to do with pharmacology, advanced airway, obstetrical, pathophysiology, disease process in the body. Are the numbers in a crew typically the same? And is there a division of labor of who does what? Uh, in Alberta, the vast majority of our staff that are on the emergency side or 911 side are paramedics or EMTs. We, uh, uh, and the new titles for that are advanced care paramedic and primary care paramedic. Uh, and as well, we have some EMRs as well that work more on the IFT or interfacility inter transfer side. Uh, but generally, our crews work in pairs, uh, either two paramedics and a paramedic and an EMT. In some areas, we do have EMTs working together, but largely we have paramedics with EMTs or two paramedics. And they simply take turns. So uh, some will go call for call, if that's the agreement they have. They'll just switch driving and, and attending call for call. More commonly, they'll do a day of driving and a day of attending and then a night of driving and then a night of attending. Uh, but if more help is required in the back, we simply, both practitioners will move to the back and request other resources to drive the ambulance, whether it's a local fire or another EMS crew. And then depending as well, too, if the patient is considered a BLS or basic life support patient that can be treated effectively by an EMT or EMR, that's what will happen, and the paramedic may be driving. However, if it is the case that uh, more advanced life support are required, such as pharmacology or airway or things like that, the paramedic will switch to attend, uh, work with the patient in the back, and the other practitioner will drive. Do they try and match rookies with more experienced people in crews? Uh, as best they can. They, they usually, um, we have a lot of junior people. That's just how the job is going, right? So it depends on what 
we would consider senior anymore. Senior is around five plus years now. It used to be more like 10 or 12 right. years, right? But generally, just because of how broad and how large we are, it's rare that very new people are paired together. That's just not how this really works. It just, it's more about uh, with more seniority, you have more choice in where you would choose to work. Uh, with less seniority, you'll be assigned where you need to be at work. How about physical fitness requirements? On and off throughout the years, there's been the addition or the deletion of a physical requirement at the time of hiring. Uh, often it's known as a PET test or physical equivalency test that, that's run by a third party. Uh, and that has been uh, more recently reintroduced uh, for as a part of the hiring process. Uh, certainly, there are different levels of, of physical fitness required at different times on this job. Uh, what we routinely do is lift heavy equipment and lift patients. That's a very, very standard part of our job. And having a certain level of physical fitness is uh, not only a healthy lifestyle, but it also prolongs your career in EMS and is highly promoted within healthcare to have that physical fitness and healthy lifestyle. It just assesses that you have that sort of minimum level of, of uh, physical fitness at the time of hiring. Uh, and there are some components that they do add into it. It's more applicable to EMS work. Uh, so, you know, lifting a stretcher, lifting a patient appropriately, uh, doing it while you're already fatigued or exhausted, things like that. Yeah. Are there lots of jobs? How do they get filled? Uh, now under AHS, theoretically, if I'm a paramedic in Calgary and a position opens in a different part of the province, uh, with internal applications and certain seniority things, there's that portability. So that's how positions are, are usually filled first now are by internal application. But of course, every time there's an internal move, there's a domino effect and a position opens somewhere else and that makes it an external application. So uh, although we are uh, hiring generally on a regular basis, I mean, it, it comes in fits and starts and the frequency can be up and down. Uh, there are greater odds for getting employment if you are a paramedic, an advanced care paramedic, an ACP, uh, versus a PCP, although uh, we do hire a lot of primary care paramedics who may be in advanced care paramedic school. That's a common thing to have happen. What does the application process look like? You do have to have a high school diploma or an equivalent. That's a, that's a minimum thing. You will have a class four license with less than six demerits. We prefer zero, but you must have a clean driving record. You must be able to pass a police security clearance check as well. Uh, when you are uh, in the application process, uh, you are required to write a written test to the level of your training. So if you're coming in as an EMR, it's different than if you're coming in as an advanced care paramedic. And there's usually a scenario involving our high fidelity mannequin or our human patient simulation, uh, where we do a live scenario that you also must pass. There are as well the requirement to be familiar with our MCPs or medical control protocols. Uh, so sometimes out of school, they're not that far off. Uh, often the, the paramedics are coming out of school are flush with academic knowledge and are, are very, very uh, lickety split on pharmacology and, and newer applications, but they do need to learn the formal AHS MCPs, or if you come from out of province. Uh, if you've also recently gained a new level of education, so you're moving from EMT to paramedic, you also have to identify that you can work within those protocols. Do you get any special driver training? Uh, you're required to have a Class 4 license, uh, which, which is also nicknamed a chauffeur license, but that's the one where if you're in charge of moving people, we receive additional driver training that's more for agility of the ambulance. It's not about speed for an ambulance. It's about being able to maneuver the ambulance safely through areas of, say, tight traffic or being able to back up safely. 
where ambulances make up time in getting to a call or to a hospital is being able to navigate roads in a different way. So we stop at red lights but can proceed when safe. We stop at stop signs but can go ahead of traffic when safe. We can use all areas of pavement in the road and we can exceed the speed limit when safe to do so. But basically if we can get to A to B without stopping or minimal stopping, that is where we make up time uh, versus particularly going fast. Um, we may respond faster to a call when we don't have a patient in the back of the ambulance, but if we were transporting lights and siren, a critical patient, we need to maintain a level and safe and predictable work environment in the back while still trying to make up some time to get to the hospital. It's a huge balance, yeah. We have to recognize that there are people working in the back. They may be temporarily standing in the back. They may be doing skills that are finer motor skills, such as initiating IVs or, or capturing airways uh, that are critical to the patient. But as a, at the same time, we need to be moving that patient from the emergency to the hospital to the highest level of care under a physician. What was your first shift like? My first day of full-time employment, because I started as an on-call paramedic, my first day of employment as full-time on a regular rotation uh, was December 25th. Uh, a C platoon of my home platoon happened to start on Christmas Day. That was day one for us. I remember uh, having a phone call from the supervisor a few days before that said, uh, I hope you don't have any plans for Christmas because uh, I got a full-time job for you. And as if I would say no, right? So I was eager to get it. And we had a quiet day. We did go uh, to an unexpected death uh, for uh, an elderly person who had simply passed away, you know, sort of a natural end of life. And so it was a little odd, you know, we were sort of visiting these folks on, on a holiday and it was very, very seasonal, but regrettably this person had passed away. Uh, but other than that, it was a relatively quiet day. What does your work schedule look like? Of course, EMS is a 24-7 business, 365 days of the year. The regular rotation for our paramedics is to do two 12-hour day shifts, so you know, roughly 5.30 to 5.30 or 6 to 6. And then uh, there's what's known as a long change, so 24 hours off between the second day shift and the first night shift, of which you'll do two night shifts, 12 hours in duration, and then you're off for four calendar days. So it's essentially two nights, two days, four off, and, and, and it just creeps ahead in a sort of an eight-day cycle. So that's what full-time looks like to a paramedic and they may pick up extra shifts on days off. Do you get break time during a shift? Yeah, there are no scheduled breaks for paramedics and EMTs. Yeah, we're not able to do that. On the transfer side, it's a little bit different because things are scheduled in book. They may do 8, 9, 10, 12 transfers in a day, but they may have a break in there somewhere. Uh, on the 911 side or emergency side, it's just not really possible. Uh, we recognize that uh, there may be some, if we're you know, in a hospital uh, you know, with, a, with an offload delay, that we may take that time to, to switch off. But uh, paramedics and EMTs sort of recognize they're going to have to sort of fit things in as they go. And that could be a stressful time. Uh, you know, the lunch is at 3 p.m right, or dirty dinner suddenly, or not at all. Uh, but uh, in essence, uh, since we're always sort of in an emergent mode while we're at work, there, there are no, no scheduled breaks for, for paramedics and EMTs. How much time on shift are you not engaged in a call? It really depends. Uh, crews in the morning will, will you know, ensure the you know, sort of vehicle readiness, and they may be moved right away to another area to cover another area, even if they don't get a call. Uh, they may receive a call right away. Uh, an average call is, you know, perhaps a couple of hours and, you know, response, uh, time on scene, transport to hospital, and then, and then clearing from that. Uh, two hours is, is not an unreasonable typical amount of time. So in a 12-hour shift, depending on what you're doing, you know, between four or five, six or seven calls, it depends on what's going on. Uh, if, a, if a crew does a call that's particularly in-depth or dramatic or, you know, whether it's a very significant medical call, a very significant trauma call, uh, they could be out of service for six hours for that call uh, by the time they're doing their documentation, getting the truck ready to go back into service. 
Are there special rules for large-scale disasters? We have protocols for large-scale incidents, yes. Uh, there are, there are uh, policies, and we do do drills for this uh, to, to be ready for large-scale incidents, uh, which is, in its easiest, scariest definition, is any incident that will quickly or has already overwhelmed available resources. And that's across the board, whether it's fire, police, EMS, and the hospital system. Uh, we've done... Uh, Drills. Uh, most recently, we did uh, one at the, in the University of Calgary, where we did an active shooter. Uh, we also did one more recently at the Calgary International Airport, and we've partnered with large agencies, uh, you know, over the years, just to work with how we will all really work together is the biggest thing. EMS certainly has a big role in a large-scale incident, uh, but we need to work very closely with everybody else, including fire police and the hospital system. My ten-year-old has a question: How do you lift something as heavy as a person? One of the applications that we use on a regular basis are our stretchers, uh, and that's uh, very, you know, a very common thing in the ambulance, uh, that a common piece of equipment that most people are kind of aware of or familiar with, that EMS or paramedics come with a stretcher, and uh, what's new and is being unveiled and rolled out across the province right at this time are the power load systems. So the stretchers themselves are becoming automated uh, so that they're moving up and down under their own power under the control of a paramedic. Uh, and that's the power stretcher, but the power load system is also a component to that. Every ambulance is being retrofitted with that, such that the, the, uh, when it's locked into its place, uh, the patient is actually moved in automatically without being lifted by the paramedic at all. And this is a, a system that's uh, being adopted the world over. There's various systems that do that. But that's one aspect. Uh, we have other tools, other than just basic lifts and carries of actually picking up a person <laughs> using, you know, under their arm or using you know, you know, a lift belt or something like that. Uh, we have what's known as a chair stretcher, which is a highly designed, specialized piece of equipment that kind of looks like a wheelchair, only it isn't, and has the ability to move patients up and down stairs uh, using a special little track system. Uh, or being able to move patient in confined spaces because sometimes we're going in and out of buildings with narrow elevators. Uh, we also have um, what's known as, a, as the Holmberg hammock, so it's something that we can just sort of sit someone in and lift them as sort of a two-person lift. Uh, and as well, we use uh, sometimes still spine boards for lifting or scoop stretchers that we can uh, have someone who's laying on the ground and put equipment underneath them and then lift them in that way. Uh, but lifts and carries for sure are a daily part of EMS. Um, that's one of the potentially highest areas of injury for paramedics and EMTs is lifting and care of patients. And so we do that under controlled circumstances with good communication and routinely ask for more help uh, to lift patients safely into the ambulance. If you could tell everyone one thing about your job, how you work, or something you want them to know, what would it be? Uh, you know, our, our, our paramedics and EMTs, uh, they, they want to do the best job they can. And, uh, and they're people, too, when they take off their uniform and, you know, and they may have been patients themselves or know someone to have. So they, you know, they come to work with, with the intention of doing the best that they can and just know that uh, when you phone 911, EMS will always respond. There's no, we have no no-send policy. There's no such thing. Uh, if you phone 911, resources will always be sent to help you. And... You know, be as honest and upfront as you can. Help them help you with the, with the information you can share. Uh, and, the, and the quicker we can sort of come to an understanding of what the concern and the emergency is, the faster we can help you. Thank you to Stuart Bordeaux for making this episode possible. You can get in touch with emergency medical services through at AHS underscore EMS on Twitter. And their hashtag is your EMS. You can also find them on Facebook. And don't forget to check out that video tour through the ambulance at youwillseethedoctornow.com. Let me know 
what you thought about this episode or the show. My Twitter handle is at Sharma 29 and you can email me at youwillseethedoctornow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.